welcome to 1867 and all that. Season 2, Episode 5, The Murder of Robert Corrigan. Robert Corrigan thought of himself as a tough guy. Corrigan was a relative newcomer to the St. Sylvester Township, just south of Quebec City. The Irishman had grown up Catholic, but later converted to the Church of England. He seems to have been overly pleased with his decision, and like a lot of converts, the case of former smokers comes to mind, not to have been shy in explaining why he'd made the right decision and happy to explain that those who hadn't were the fools. It was not an especially popular choice in a region largely populated by Catholics, predominantly Irish Catholics, but also a, a large number of French Catholics too. Corrigan didn't seem to mind. By most accounts, he was an intimidating figure who regularly boasted that he was what he called the best man in the county. That is, that he could take on and defeat all comers, that he would take down anyone who wanted to challenge him to a fight. A few brave souls had tried to prove otherwise and had left bruised, bleeding, and proven wrong. So whatever else Corrigan was, he wasn't crazy to think well of his physical prowess. Today, some might describe Corrigan as the bearer of toxic masculinity, but in the Canadas of the 1850s, he was just a tough and boastful man. Remember, at this time, it was still not uncommon for gentlemen to fight duels when they felt insulted or that their honor had been tarnished. Corrigan was no gentleman, but he took part in the more down-in-the-mud, humble man's version of the duel. Unfortunately for Corrigan, he annoyed the wrong people. By the autumn of 1855, he had been fighting an on-again, off-again war of fists and words with a gang of ribbon men, that is, members of the secret Irish Catholic organization that was the rival to the Protestant Orangemen. The year before, this gang of ribbon men had come to challenge Corrigan, taking him up on the boast that he was the best man in the region. He put one of them down, but then they came again, this time en masse, and, well, they beat him up. This was too much even for Corrigan, five against one, and he attempted to get warrants for their arrests. After this, the conflict seems to have cooled down, but really the ribbon men were just biding their time. In October 1855, they saw their chance. Corrigan was serving as a judge at the local agricultural fair. It was when he was assessing the merit of a cow owned by a Catholic farmer. Corrigan ranked the cow poorly, and the farmer was, well, none too pleased. Unbeknownst to Corrigan, a gang of the ribbon men had gathered around the judging, determined to teach him a lesson. They used this as their chance to set upon him with cudgels, or shillelahs, as the Irish called them. The crowd shouted in amazement, and a few of Corrigan's friends tried to intervene, but the ribbon men beat them back. Again and again, the gang punched and kicked and beat him, with one man allegedly jumping up and down on Corrigan's stomach. Finally, one of the leaders of the ribbon men arrived and told his attackers that Corrigan had gotten what he deserved and could now be left. The severely wounded Corrigan hobbled away to a nearby farm. Lying in pain, he said that the gang had killed him, and when his friends asked if they could get a doctor, he said not to bother, that he was already dead. And he did indeed die, a painful two days later. Okay, so far, so brutal, but also pretty local. This was a violent story of petty gangs and rivalries. But it didn't remain so for long. 
the terrible tale of what became known as the Corrigan murder or the St. Sylvester murder spread across the country. First taken up by the English-speaking press in Quebec City, it spread westward along the telegraph lines, sparking stories in the newspapers of little towns along the way, building into a frenzy of speculation and anger, especially as it moved into Upper Canada. It wasn't just the murder itself. What ignited flares of indignation was the failure of the local authorities to even arrest any suspects, and then later to successfully bring anyone to justice. This was a conflict both deeply local, literally a dispute between neighbors, and at the same time reflecting and deepening profound social cleavages. Within a matter of months, the very survival of the government would depend on how members of parliament felt about the government's handling of the Corrigan murder. As Corrigan lay dying, one of the three local magistrates finally showed up to see what all the fuss was about. It's worth pointing out that all three local magistrates, the people responsible for keeping the peace in the region, had been at the agricultural fair, and yet none seems to have known what had happened. And yes, this is indeed very suspicious. Yes, they almost certainly didn't want to know what had happened, which might have been all right if it had only been a fight. But when it turned into a murder, the whole situation changed. The magistrate now took Corrigan's testimony only hours before he died. This is where Corrigan named a group of men whom he said had been responsible for the attack. Armed with this information, but not at all feeling confident that he could himself make any arrests, the magistrate sent word to Quebec City. He wanted a warrant for the men's arrest and, more importantly, a constable and an armed escort to come to the area to arrest them. In the meantime, the St. Sylvester Township was not a friendly locale. A local Protestant overheard someone who said that the ribbon men planned to steal and then burn Corrigan's body to destroy the evidence of foul play. This prompted a crowd of 300 Orangemen from the, a nearby Protestant town of Leeds to descend upon the area, snatch up Corrigan's body, and take it back to their hall. That's where the local magistrate went to find Corrigan's body and to hold the official inquiry into the death. Now, that inquest, staffed with local Protestants from the town, of course, found that the death was a case of willful murder. Now the suspects really had to be found. The only problem? No one could find them, or so they said anyway. When the Quebec constable and his crew arrived, the magistrate was too frightened even to escort them to the farms of the wanted men. When the constable did finally convince a local to show him around, it turned into a fruitless search. The constable arrived at the men's farms, only to be told, Who? Him? No, he's not here. Nope, nope, no idea where he could be. It was the same story everywhere. Whether out of sympathy with the suspects or, just as likely, fearing retribution from the ribbon men, should they cooperate with authorities, the locals closed ranks and refused to cooperate. The constable and his team even began to fear for their lives, and at one point, after hearing gunshots and rumors of a gang of ribbon men who were coming to ambush them, they barricaded themselves into a defensive position and refused to budge. Now, they left eventually, but without any suspects. And so it went all through the autumn of 1855, with no suspects arrested. 
the Canadian government was feeling pressure to act and ordered a troop of almost 100 soldiers to descend on the region and capture the men wanted for Corrigan's murder. But that's when events took an even stranger turn. The soldiers boarded a train bound for the region and had only just left the station when their train went off the rails. Now, luckily, the train was traveling only at only a slow speed, and so no one, uh, was, no one died. But the rumors spread. Someone claimed to have seen a suspicious-looking figure lurking over near the rail switch. Had their campaign been sabotaged? Dusting themselves off from the mishap, the troops proceeded into the area, heading to the farms of the various suspects. But just as with the constable's mission weeks earlier, the troops found the same result. No one knew or claimed to know where the men could be found. Even a a reward of $500 failed to elicit their capture. The soldiers, too, returned empty-handed. If you're thinking that the Canadian media was going to explode into conniptions about this state of affairs, you would be right. To George Brown and the Globe, the Corrigan murder became a symbol of all that was wrong with the sectional, dual, and unjust nature of Canada as it was in the mid-1850s. George Brown and the Globe demanded action. The whole scene brought back memories of the Gavazzi riot of only a few years before. In that instance, Protestants had been massacred by troops and by angry mobs for daring to invite a controversial speaker to Montreal, a city in a British colony, a civilization that was supposed to honor liberty and free expression. In the case of the Gavazzi riots, ultimately no one was found to be guilty of the many killings. Would the same injustice continue in Corrigan's case? To people like George Brown, it seemed quite possible. For the new McNabb-Taché ministry, the murder and its aftermath represented a dangerous crisis. Like the Baldwin-Lafontaine coalition before them, the new ministry was built across the religious and sectional divides of the Canadas. A prominent case like this threatened to tear it apart. The government had to fear attacks from Brown, of course, but they also had to be wary of internal divisions, especially from their rightward conservative flank in Upper Canada and the Protestant sections of Lower Canada. The government was made up of moderate Tories, but they needed the support of old family compact folks as well. And these people were now led by a man named John Hilliard Cameron. Cameron was a a flashy, articulate lawyer who, like most of the time, speculated in business and politics. He had been Solicitor General back in the Draper government in the 1840s, and by the mid-1850s was seen as the leading figure on the government's right flank. And in the winter of 1856, he pounced. By this point, the Corrigan suspects had finally surrendered themselves for trial. It seems that they'd been waiting until the next assizes, which weren't until early in 1856. Why surrender yourself only to have to sit in jail? Once the men were in custody, the justice system moved swiftly ahead, and by mid-February of 1856, the men were on trial. As the Globe put it at the time, though, with proof so clear, it is difficult to perceive how the guilty parties can escape punishment but it is impossible to forget who they are and by whom protected. We shall wait the issue with anxiety. The trial was a disaster from the start. In fact, the judge had to declare a mistrial on the very first day when the jury left for lunch, and then one of their number just never came back. 
Now, someone did eventually locate the truant juror and the trial restarted amazingly with the exact same jury. The courtroom was anything but judicious or neutral. The defendants apparently sauntered in proudly, laughing and conversing with the audience, confident that they would be set free. It soon became clear why they were so confident. Several witnesses almost certainly perjured themselves, now changing their testimony in the trial from what they had originally said at the inquest. Was this because of intimidation? Probably, though we'll never know for sure. Remember that magistrate who had taken Corrigan's own testimony as the latter lay dying? Well, he had changed his tune. He was supposed to be the prosecution's star witness, but he ended up casting doubt onto Corrigan's final words, making them seem now unreliable. It also didn't help when members of the audience slipped into the box containing the defendants without anyone seeming to notice, and witnesses then started having trouble identifying exactly who had been present at the attack. Quite unexpectedly, when the the prosecution wrapped up its case, the jury foreman rose and announced that the jury was already prepared to acquit all defendants. Now, the judge intervened and insisted that they listen to the defense, surely only going to convince them further, and then his own instructions. Not surprisingly, after the defense witnesses and the final statements from the lawyers and instructions from the judge, the jury again came back with an acquittal for all defendants. With shouts and cheers, the crowd lifted the defendants onto their shoulders and carried them to freedom. To say that this angered Protestant Canada would be an understatement. The reaction of the English-speaking paper, the Quebec Gazette, gives the general flavor and also, I think, a delicious sense of the hyper-emotional language of the partisan Victorian press. The murderers of Robert Corrigan are free. Truth has been prostituted. Justice is ignored. The murderers of Robert Corrigan may trample to death whom they please. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The trial of Kelly, who burst the bowels of Corrigan asunder, is at an end. Mr. Justice Duval has opened the doors of the dungeon and amidst roars of laughter set a villain at large to indulge his ferocious passions at will. Now, as the Gazette excerpt here shows, public anger soon centered on the conduct of the judge in the case, Justice Duval. According to some figures, the judge had led the jury astray, misleading them on the law of the case. So that is what the Tory assemblyman, John Hilliard Cameron, focused on. The trick was to get a hold of the copy of this charge to the jury and assess whether this was true or not. The charge itself wasn't printed in the papers and wasn't available online, of course. Instead, it seemed that it was going to take extraordinary measures to acquire the transcript. Now, Cameron moved in the assembly that the charge should be delivered up to the the assembly. For Cameron, it was a matter of legal principle. Anyone who took part in a conspiracy to do something illegal, oh, let's say in this case, beat someone, even if they didn't intend to murder anyone, is equally guilty when something even worse happens as a result of the conspiracy. Oh, let's say when the beating ends up going overboard and turning into murder. It should not have mattered how small had been someone's part in the more harmful act, the the killing of Corrigan. It shouldn't have mattered if there was doubt about exactly who had delivered the killing blow. If all had taken part in the conspiracy, all should be guilty. 
that no one could have been found guilty at all was even more astounding. This had to have been the result of the judge misinterpreting and, what's more, misexplaining the law. Now, Cameron's motion in the House kicked off a heated debate in Parliament that exposed the weak underside of the government, the question of unity and sectional grievances. Politicians vied with each other to debate the merits of the motion, and the fate of the government hung in the balance. Meanwhile, the fallout from the trial took the usual Victorian denouement. Victorians loved to bemoan the fate of just about any sad widow, and it was hard to beat the widow Corrigan in the sadness stakes. Left with her four children, now uncared for by any man on her farm, what was to happen to the Corrigan family? Concerned citizens organized a soiree in Toronto to raise money, and the papers were filled with appeals and woeful accounts of the sorry state of justice in Lower Canada. In Parliament, the debate over the motion to procure Justice Duval's charge turned more serious when it became a motion of confidence in the government. Surely, some said, the government itself was to blame for its mishandling of the whole event. It didn't help that the prosecutor in the case had been a man called Dunbar Ross, none other than the government's own solicitor general. Luckily for the McNabb-Tache government, when it seemed possible that the government might fall, his supporters closed ranks. Yes, upper Canadians and Protestants everywhere were indignant about the Corrigan case, but that didn't mean that they wanted the government to fall. In the final reckoning, they found a compromise. They voted down the non-confidence motion and instead turned to that old standby of governments everywhere determined to rock the public to sleep and calm a rambunctious issue. They formed a committee to investigate the whole affair. The committee would meet on and off for more than a year and, and, and uh, stir up headlines from time to time, ultimately finding to no one's surprise that, well, no one was to blame. So the government had escaped, at least for the moment, but Protestant Canada was angry, and what's more, there was dissatisfaction within the ranks of the government itself. You remember that the capital at this time moved between Quebec City and Toronto every few years. That had been Montreal's punishment for its rambunctious behavior back in 1849. The problem was that this roving solution pleased no one. Quebec seemed too far and distant to Upper Canadians, and Besides, it was in the all-too-Catholic and French confines of Lower Canada. Well, Lower Canadians felt about the same about Toronto. Even Lower Canadians were divided because of their dueling rivalry between Quebec and Montreal, the latter of which hadn't given up the hope of recapturing the prize. But Upper Canadians wanted the capital permanently in their own section. Toronto, of course, believed it deserved the prize. And even almost forgotten Kingston, remember it had housed the capital back when the United Province was first formed in 1841, well, it too wanted a chance again, and its local leader, John A. Macdonald, made the case strenuously. In short, no one could agree. Different assemblymen put forward motions for one city only to have them defeated by those from other cities. Well, they did until the spring of 1856. It was late in the session, only shortly after the controversy over the Corrigan trial had abated, that several members of the government put forward a motion presenting Quebec City as the seat of the permanent capital. And it passed, which sort of surprised everyone. 
What now? Everything re remained somewhat in abeyance until mid-May when the government decided to appropriate funds so as to actually turn the motion into reality. That is, to put aside some money to build proper parliamentary buildings. That's when everything fell apart. Because it was a money bill put forward by the government, it became a confidence motion. Observers watched to see what would happen, wondering if the government would fall and, well, it did and it didn't, sort of. The government's motion passed, but it did so with a majority of members from Upper Canada voting against it. Now, we've been here before, that old question of the double majority and sectional equality. How could you move the capital, housed now in Toronto, to Quebec against the wishes of Upper Canadians? At the end of the day, the members of the government who represented ridings in Upper Canada thought that you couldn't. They all announced that they were resigning and they stepped down from the government. Now, Alan McNabb himself had not wanted to resign at all, but without his upper Canadian ministers, there was nothing he could do. So he too tendered his resignation. Now, the thing is, this doesn't seem to have been simply about the seat of government. How do I know that, you might ask? Well, let's look at what happened next. For three days, everyone waited to see who the governor would ask to form a government and what that government would look like. Who would be in the new coalition? The answer turned out to be pretty much everyone who was in the last government, save for Alan McNabb. You see, there had been rumblings inside the governing coalition for some time, dissatisfaction with the leadership. There was the threat from the right from John Cameron and the Family Compact Group. But the government also depended on the support of a few Hinksite reformers, that is, moderate liberals, who had been part of the previous Hinks government and who had stuck around to support this government. That's why we call it the liberal conservative government. Now, they increasingly didn't like sitting alongside the old Tory McNabb. McNabb was simply becoming too unpopular. The whole thing was also wrapped up in the midst of railway politics, McNabb had been a director of the Great Western Railway, but when that company decided to get rid of him, McNabb, McNabb accepted a large sum of money, only to then leave and immediately join with the Great Western's rivals, the Grand Trunk Railway. And then there was just the fact that McNabb had been ill and had barely been in the assembly anyway for the last several months. Maybe some thought they would be better off without him. Some have even suggested that the whole seat of government issue had just been an invented crisis, an elaborate way to get rid of the old knight. We don't know for sure, though I, I think I, there's reason to doubt some of this because certainly the seat of government issue was pretty controversial. All we know is that after the collapse of the upper Canadian section, after all there was resignations, the exact same coalition came back, but now minus McNabb and with a new leader. So, who would replace him? Who would replace McNabb to head up the Western section? Well, it turned out to be that affable charmer from Kingston, John A. Macdonald. What had been the McNabb-Taché government now became the McDonald-Taché government. After all the furor over Corrigan, sometimes politics can just be decided by infighting and blind ambition. The coalition is dead. Long live the coalition. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. 
Next week, we're back into the thick of religious and sectional conflict, and we're going to meet one man who saw it as his destiny to smooth out the ruffles in the messy bed of Canadian religious strife, a Catholic order extraordinaire named Darcy McGee. And alas, a man who would die for his convictions, but not next week. After an election in which McGee comes onto the scene, we'll head to one of the more unpleasant St. Patrick's Days in Canadian history and without any green beer. If you like what you've heard, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts, spread the word, send me a note. One note I had recently said that this podcast series is now on the curriculum at an independent school in Northern Ontario where the, the grade seven and eight students listen to the episodes, uh, which is more than a little impressive considering I also use the same episodes to teach university level courses based on these podcasts. So, so good on you. 1867 and all that is created by me, Christopher Dummett. This year it's also funded by you, the listeners. For $5 a month, you can become an 1867 and all that patron, a real-life supporter of history in action. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.